in, in the work that we do, the more and more we interview people that have had long careers in these environments, these, these kind of mainly occupational settings, good deploying to very challenging environments, the people that have had, that have performed and stayed healthy through those careers, stayed healthy with maybe kind of periods where they were struggling a little bit, but they all talk about self-reflection. So, so getting to a point of, there's a sort of developmental trajectory of self-regulation that allow them to perform consistently and stay happy and healthy whilst doing so. And that comes from sort of regular self-reflection. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Nathan Smith. Nathan is an associate professor in security, behavior, and emerging technology at Coventry University, the head of science at Volbach, that's V-O-L-L-E-B-A-K, the director of Sterland Research, and one of the project directors at Drift. Now, if that wasn't enough, he's also a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and a former research scientist at the UK Ministry of Defense Science and Technology Lab. Throughout all of these endeavors, he describes himself as focused on resilience, performance, and health in extreme and high-risk environments. Now, there is so much in this episode. We talk about performance optimization in extreme environments like exploring underwater caves or outer space, the ARC model of autonomy, relatedness, and competence, decision-making and training in traditional versus unexplored environments, and we even get into the drift project he's working on, which is honestly exceptionally cool. Before we jump in, there is so much going on at the Emergency Mind Project right now, and we would love to have you on board. In addition to this podcast, you can join in for our newsletter where we'll drill deeper into key concepts, hot wash cases, and generally explore all facets of elite performance at the individual and team levels. You can find that at emergencymind.com slash signup. You can also read our book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, which you can find at emergencymind.com slash book. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, if you have ideas of what you want to hear or if you want to bring the Emergency Mind Project to your group or organization to do some deeper training, you can reach out to us directly at info at emergencymind.com. We would love to hear from you. One technical note before we jump into this episode, about 10 minutes in, there's a weird hiccup since we lost power during the recording and had to reboot everything. All that said, let's jump into this awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It is great to finally connect after trading messages for what seems like a billion years. I am psyched to have you on and have folks learn about this awesome stuff that you're up to. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, it was a challenge to get this arranged, wasn't it? So it's good to be with you. Absolutely. For folks that don't know you, can you give us just a brief sort of upper level overview of who you are and what you're up to? Sure. So I guess the, the probably the most straightforward answer to that is I'm an academic. I have an associate professor position at a university in the UK, a place called Coventry University. And my somewhat kind of flamboyant title is um, Associate Professor of Security Behaviour and Emerging Technology, which I don't really know what that means. My work, the, the sort of reality of my work is that I study resilience and performance in people that operate in extreme, high-risk remote and isolated environments. That's my kind of bag, really. And where the emerging technology bit intersects with that is we use technology to try and undertake research, but also help those people operate and perform effectively in those settings. Aside from my academic stuff, I have a couple of other kind of roles that I they do. So I run a, my own company. We do kind of consultancy work for different organizations that send people to those places. And I'm head of science for a, a startup in London called Volaback, who produce 
more primarily clothing for people going off to extreme places, but also are moving into different spaces, architecture and technology. Oh, really cool. Quite the, the different like array of activities all arranged around that. They all end up intersecting on this idea of, of humans in extremes and how we can enable them to operate. That's, that's the sort of common thread. Now, are you in this because that's you? Are you a human in extreme environments often? Is this a space that you love being in or? Well, I have two children under the age of three, so that's a pretty extreme life circumstance. Lack of sleep. I would never classify myself the same as the people that we, we do research on. But I've done some small, very, very minor kind of expeditions in Norway. I went to Antarctica a few years ago, tripped across a you know part of Iceland and done, done a few things to kind of, I guess, live the experience that some of these people go through as part of what they do on a day-to-day basis. So I try and, yeah, I've tried to get a bit of that experience myself so that when I'm talking about this stuff, I, I have at least a, a tiny insight into that world. But yeah, I wouldn't position myself as anywhere near an expert in that stuff. At least one frostbitten toe, I think, is this. <laughs> yeah, a missing digit is a kind exactly. of a, a given. Hopefully not. Yes, yeah. hopefully not. So how did you get into this? I think my arc for today is that, is that we're going to get into some of the different approaches from these different hats that you're wearing into what is resilience and supporting human performance in extreme environments. But how did you get there? What was it that got you locked into this problem set from all these different angles? If we rewind to my kind of studies, I guess, I was doing, well, initially I did a, a sort of degree in sports science, so a kind of classic undergraduate degree, and gradually got more and more interested in the psychology of that aspect, in, you know, particularly in sport settings, and then did a PhD in sport and performance psychology. So very kind of traditional sports in the UK, all in tennis and golf, and looking at how people perform in those settings. During that process, you know, I spent a long time at the same university doing this research, reading papers and, and getting kind of deep into the, down into the weeds in some of that stuff. And I, I very clearly remember actually one day thinking, I'm getting a bit bored of this stuff and, and spent the next hour or so just going and searching for other things. I mean, my topic was motivation. So that was what I was really interested in. Like how do people motivate themselves and stay motivated to perform? And my kind of thinking went off in this direction of like, where does motivation really matter? Like what settings is motivation not just important for like, are they enjoying what they're doing, but actually life and death? So I sort of went off on this weird intellectual journey into the sort of depths of, of the psychology literature and found this sort of niche area. And the first paper that I read was, it was called Homo Invictus, the Indomitable Species. And it was, you know, this, I, I read this thing and I was like, I don't want to swear, but I was like, F, this is, this is really like captivating. There's a bioprofessor called Peter Sudfeld, who's quite well known in across various areas, but he, he did a lot of research on like polar scientists and, and astronauts and people that choose to put themselves under kind of intense pressure and stress as part of their work. And actually the reality, what he found over the years was that most of those people do well in those environments. It kind of opposed to the old school view that if you send people to these extreme places, they're going to come back broken or in some way unwell. He found the opposite of that. Oh, super cool. All right. Well, I mean, I'm inspired just hearing that, right? Like that seems like an interesting like approach to applying motivation into thinking about the the psychological aspects of performance. Maybe it's worth sort of saying this, like when you're putting up the dichotomy between the, you know, football or golf player that plays a sport and the folks that are doing some of the things that that you're now involved in. You know, you have this like traditional environment versus extreme environment. What do you see as the main salient differences between these things? 
Like, what is it that defines the environment that you're now spending your time working in? I would never kind of trade those two things off as like one's better or worse. Like, I, you know, I no, no, always right. football and golf and stuff. Right. So it's not, it was more, you know, I got interested in this this stuff because it was it was exciting and sexy to me, and I was you know thinking, oh, right, this is this is something I can really get my hands on. I think the the difference, you know, contextually, there's a very different environment. So there's a the psychological and social threats might be quite similar in some ways. The observation from peers not performing very well, that kind of social facilitation effects maybe. There's the sort of psychological pressure that people are under to perform. But then if you look at the environmental or physical characteristics of the environment, that's usually where they they differ quite substantially, especially when we're looking at kind of remote environment expeditions where you might be in extreme hot or extreme cold, separated from like resources that you'd rely on, so access to food and water. You might be in a microgravity environment if you're in space. So there's sort of physical features in the environment that are very different. There will then be kind of psychological and social differences as well. So, you know, extreme high uncertainty in some of these environments. Like if you're going into a deep cave system or if you're on an operation in a sort of denied area, if you think about the military and security aspects of some of the stuff we do, you know, there's lots of uncertainty in some of those places where you don't quite know what's going to happen. You might be operating in an environment where there's a sort of socially hostile population that you're amongst. So there's quite different demands from a, a sport setting to then if we start to move into extreme and high risk groups that we tend to study, that those those demands differ quite significantly. So are we talking here about, and let's just push on uncertainty for a minute, are we talking here about sort of like bounded versus unbounded uncertainty? Is that sort of the metric that we're using? Because we think about uncertainty in, you know, I think about my shift that I had last night, right? Like person comes up in front of me, they're presenting with terrible chest pain and I'm looking at them and I'm like, okay, well, like there's a couple of things that this could be and here are some bad things and here are some not so bad things. And I'm thinking through the probabilities and my resource management and I'm matching all these systems up and I'm training the doctors, you know, under and around me to do that same multi-level threading and processing. But really all of that uncertainty exists within some, you know, like they're unlikely to suddenly sprout a third arm and, you know, be like, that was the cause of my chest pain. So what are we dealing with in terms of how big or deep this uncertainty is? Yes, I think, I mean, the bounded uncertainty thing. So, you know, we talk a lot about, and this won't be new to you, Dan. So this, the idea of like scenario planning, what if planning in, in our world, I think there's a lot of the, the kind of debriefing after action review type stuff taking place. I mean, all of that stuff is aimed at reducing uncertainty in some, in some shape or form. You know, if we can learn from this stuff, we can build it into standard operating procedures and things that allow us to, I guess, control some of those potentially uncertain situations. So you might have a, you know, patient comes in, you might have a checklist that you go through and it allows you to have some kind of consistent process that controls some of that uncertainty that might exist. I think when we start talking about layers of risk in extreme and high risk environments, and we're starting to push right close to those edges where we're moving into space where it's not bounded uncertainty. We're talking about off nominal events, things that are a complete kind of side shot. You know, things that are happening outside of what we'd normally do. That's where the the pressure, you know, we, we start to move into a psychological state that maybe shifts us to potentially underperforming or, or struggling to cope with that that stuff that's very different and new. 
what happens there? I mean, I, I don't know if that's a question that is big enough to contain the answer to this, but like, what what is it that happens to most folks or on average or something when you run into these events that are just truly different than what you've prepared for? You know, when we're talking about kind of, I guess, highly skilled people, so people that have been, you know, very well trained, very well trained on standard processes and procedures, but maybe also selected for their ability to solve problems and be creative and be adaptable and flexible. You would hope in those situations, those people are able to adjust and adapt their approach so that they can navigate their way through those situations. I mean, I, I refer a bit to a good colleague of mine, a guy called Professor Lawrence Allison, who has done a lot of research on decision-making under pressure, and they do work on kind of least worst decisions. So people that are put in a situation where you've got five decisions and they're all rubbish, like, you know, all of the outcomes, they're all bad decisions. So they call them least worst decisions. So what they're, what they're really trying to do in that situation is find the least worst one out of those options. And when they talk about doing that, that, you know, the very, very clearly is like, what's the goal? That, that's the thing that people go back to is to avoid this experience, what they call redundant deliberation. So, you know, people sometimes get into those situations that are so new and novel that they end up in this trapped in this cycle of trying to figure out like what is the best thing and they call it redundant deliberation where they're just going through the the potential consequences of these decisions rather than going actually my goal here is to save lives and so this is the best choice to get to that point so they can kind of short circuit the decision process a little bit so there's things that happen in those environments we kind of know that adaptability cognitive flexibility is quite quite important in those situations if we start to move that into a a team context, this is where you might see like classic team models. There's a sort of adaptive teams model that Gary Klein proposed quite a long time ago now, I think it was the early 2000s, where they talk about communication, cooperation, and coordination being the kind of central components of adaptive team performance. Those things may break down when you start to put people under extreme pressure in those kind of very unusual and novel situations. That, I, you know, I guess that's that's how some of that might play out from a, mm-hmm. a theory informed perspective. So let's say we're listening to this and we're not somebody who is regularly exploring ice caves underwater in the Arctic, which is probably most of us. But still, there's a lot of parallels to this because a lot of us run into these situations that are quite unexpected for us, although perhaps not with the same frequency or, or impact that we're describing. So I, I guess I'd ask sort of two questions. One is, in your experience working with these folks, how do we set ourselves up for success in this, in these environments? And that's a huge question that we can wander through for a while. And the other is, I guess in a, on a sort of smaller note, how much of this uncertainty does it really take to trigger this in us? Right? Like this kind of things we're describing probably isn't going to happen when I'm driving to work. But how likely am I to encounter this? Or where do you see this sort of playing out in, in a lot of other lives? Mm, two really good questions. So I think the, with the first one, I'd start with yeah. the importance of self-reflection. So, so, you know, I'd say that kind of as a, a throwaway comment, but actually, you know, the more and more I, in, in the work that we do, the more and more we interview people that have had long careers in these environments, these kind of you know, mainly occupational settings, deploying to very challenging environments, the people that have had, that have performed and stayed healthy through those, those careers stayed healthy with maybe kind of periods where they were struggling a little bit, but they all talk about self-reflection. So getting to a point of, there's a sort of developmental trajectory of self-regulation that allow them to perform consistently and stay happy and healthy whilst doing so. And that comes from sort of regular self-reflection upon 
what I was doing, what impact it had on me, how effective it was and what I might do different next time. So that's a very common thread across everyone we speak to that sort of excelled in these settings is this sort of regular kind of mental check-in with themselves on, on what I'm doing. Do you see that, a pattern in that? Is there some sort of a structure that people tend to use or is it just like all of them have some baseline level of, oh, I, I have periodic reviews of myself or sort of self-talk? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit of self-talk. I think there's a lot of people do it as part of their sort of post-performance routines. So like they've been in a performative scenario and they use it as a way of kind of capping it off and mentally detaching from what they've been doing so that they can then kind of get the rest recovery in and stuff. That's a common thing that we hear is like, I'll cycle home from work at the end of the day and I'll be using that time as well as concentrating on the road, but as I'll be using that time to process some of the stuff and just being reflective of what's happened and how I've dealt with some of those things. I think within that, there's a tendency, at least the people we've we've interviewed around kind of the psychology of resilient function and performance, there's a tendency for them to move away a little bit from technical and tactical things to more of a human behavior focus. So they're starting to, to venture into a little bit more of that kind of how effective was my team working today or how well did I make decisions or not? How, to what extent was I able to manage my thoughts and feelings to allow me to do the things I wanted to do? So they're, they're sort of shifting a little bit from, did I press these keys right? Or did I press the buttons right on this phone? Or did I write these things correctly on a sheet to what was I doing that enabled me to perform those, those kind of core technical skills that I needed to do? So that's one, I guess, observation that we've, that we've found. I think the other thing, it keeps coming up and now we, we are doing, you know, we've got three or four data sets that we're writing up at the moment on people that are operating in extremists, so out in the field, where we're looking at core psychological experiences. And the three things that keep coming up, so agency, like, do you feel in control, relatedness or connection? Like, do you feel like you belong in that environment? Are you trusted and supported by other people? And competence, like, are you, do you perceive yourself to be effective? Are you confident that you can do the things that you are being asked to do? And those three psychological mechanisms, we've been calling them ARC, um, autonomy, relatedness, and competence in our, some of the applied work that myself and colleagues do. Those three things are, seem to be kind of psychological primitives of optimal performance and health responses in these environments. So, okay, so you have these psychological primitives. What do you do with those? Do you, you measure them, you build them, you train them? Are there exercises you can do to sort of make that happen? Or how does that look? Yeah. So, you know, in the research we do, we measure them. So we try and understand like what's the effect of these things on these other things. So the example of, you know, one study we've been doing with NASA where we've been using like diaries, so structured diaries to assess people when they're off on expeditions. So people rowing oceans and climbing mountains and skiing polar ice caps and stuff like that. They do a kind of regular assessment at the start and the end of each day. And we've been looking at the relationship between those factors that I've just mentioned and a range of behavioral health and performance outcomes to see if there's a, a consistent pattern of relationship. And if I, if I tell you I've got high autonomy, what does that mean for these other things? So we've been looking at that on a daily basis, but what we've also been interested in is the recursive effect. So what effect does that relationship on that given day have on what happens the next day? Mm. And what we see is that if you say, as an example, my autonomy is high today, you also report higher perceptions of self-performance, higher perceptions of team functioning, better behavioral and mental health. The consequences of those 
outcomes being better is the next day you also report higher autonomy. So there's a sort of, and then the same thing for, for relatedness and competence. There's this kind of recursive effect yeah. that's, if we can start to build some of that stuff, we can forward influence what's going to happen in the coming days, which is a really nice finding. Yeah. I think the the thing when we start looking at these things, so if we, if we took that took a broader spread of, of people. So we studied quite a lot of expedition teams in that, that project, but we have quite a lot of case study data as well, where if we're looking at, I'll just give an example of these, these guys that spent 90 days out in Greenland in a habitat that they'd built on, on an ice cap. And we tracked them every day using the, an app that we built called the Drift app. And again, it allowed us to measure, monitor some of these psychological factors as well as some other stuff. And if we just left people alone and we were monitoring these things over time, what was really interesting is that they fluctuate quite a lot. Like, you know, you'd think that, uh, you know, Dan, you, you feel like you have a sense of agency autonomy. The temptation might be to think, oh, well, that's probably going to be fairly consistent. Like Dan's probably going to feel like that most days. But actually the reality in the data that we've seen on, on lots of expeditions is that that stuff goes up and down and, you know, might be doing stuff one day and feel really confident. And the next day, for whatever reason, your teammate might have told you not very good, or you might have made an error on something that's really important. Your confidence then, then dips. And so if we leave these things to chance, the likelihood is that they'll be going up and down and fluctuate, which is normally fine. But if we're talking about situations and job roles or, or environments where the ability to perform is crucial for safety and health, then we probably don't want to leave that to chance. So we try and do things or we try and focus on how we might help people enhance those perceptions, those psychological perceptions. It's funny, you're saying that you might think that there's sort of a, a sort of constant like flow and, and capacity in that. And I feel like you're describing the opposite of that. I feel that up and down in it. And I see it in my teams, right? Even in the course of a micro moment, like a shift, right? So you have the shift and you're running the resuscitation teams for that shift. You'll see people spark up and feel really competent and you know high levels of relatedness and autonomy and then something will happen and they'll just crumble apart and then you have to rebuild them and so that periodicity is really interesting have you seen that sort of fractal pattern to it like there's changes that happen naturally over days are there also changes that happen naturally over periods of time and and i guess it's even worth saying out loud like what a hopeful thing to hear that even people that are so badass that they're out doing these crazy expeditions also feel these things that us mere mortals feel when we're going through our work. Like, I think that's a really hopeful message. I mean, I, I completely agree. I, I, you know, I look at this data and I think these people, they probably would be classed, you know, we talk about high achievers, they'd probably be classed as high achievers for sure, but they're not infallible. Like from a psychological perspective, people have the same, you know, vulnerabilities or sure. whatever we might, whatever terms we'd label we might apply to them, but perhaps they may be better equipped or that for, for some reason they're better able to go, okay, let's bring that back up. And then what they do to, to kind of influence that may mark them out as having some skill set that enables them to kind of bring that function back to, to a level that allows them to thrive. The periodicity question, I think is, it's hard to answer, you know, kind of very convincingly because actually getting the data yeah, we've done a lot of work on gathering daily or like multiple assessments in a day. So we're starting to get a kind of granular perspective of some of this stuff. But most of the work that's gone on in the past has been weekly or monthly tempo. If you compare those sort of responses, if we took competence, if you looked at ratings of competence with a weekly interval, 
you're probably going to find quite a lot of stability in those scores. Right. If we look at it at a granular level, a daily level, or a you know three times daily level, you get more variability. And there's some data published on this recently. Is like if the more fine grained we go, the more variability we're probably going to capture in these experiences. And that's partly to do with how we're getting people to think about and frame their responses to those types of assessments. It's like in the past hour, in the past three hours, how have you been feeling? Versus overall in the past week, how have you been doing? You're going to capture a little bit different perspectives. It's interesting to think about, is this churn? Is it literally just froth, basically, that like your mind is doing stuff and people's minds do stuff? Or are you really seeing sort of like a moving window average effect where you're really sort of like summing up over your experiences as you reflect on them? And probably as you're describing from the self-reflective practice, probably the act of summing up your experiences actually is a transformative event, not just like a summative event, mm. not just like a reflective event. You're getting into some interesting tools there about how because like, obviously I'm like, we're really interested in this, right? We want to understand how to maximize our ability to perform under pressure, whether that's the pressure of a resuscitation room or tying the right knot on the side of a freezing mountain and like getting it correctly, right? So we're interested in enhancing these things and in figuring out how to keep that almost like psychological momentum you were describing going. Am, am I reading that right? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the question around how are we informing those ratings or those self-evaluations? I think it's probably a bit of both. It's it's probably a bit of, there's something, you know, we aggregate experiences and then we try to inform a perspective. There may be a little bit of, you know, there's, there's particularly powerful things that influence those. And so that takes precedent. So it's probably a bit of both. I think what we found when we, you know, we did, we've been doing some work recently where through a, a fairly demanding assessment and selection program, We've been getting the candidates that are on that program to use a logbook. So like every every couple of days, they're reflecting on these experiences as they're going through demanding situations. And what we're seeing, the variability in those scores, so that how they're responding to those experiences is shaped very much by the things that are being done on that course. And we know, you know there are certain periods of that course where there are very difficult events or that is particularly challenging and we see that reflected in the, the perceptions of the candidates. So I would say that probably the, the demands of a, of a situation will influence some of that stuff, which gives you confidence because, you know, if you can start to predict like, okay, there's going to be these difficult things coming up and it might then influence my psychological function in, in this sort of way, which we can give you some data and show you that this is what tends to happen to these people. Yeah. Then you can be thinking through what might I do to manage that effect. I think immediately of the uh, second year January slump in emergency medicine training, right? So you have a four-year program, you come through, there's all this stuff you go through as an intern, you're, you hit your side as a second year, you start realizing you're, you're maybe getting a little bit of skill, your autonomy rises, your competence rises, you're no longer the junior, you're more part of a team, and then it becomes winter and something goes wrong and you maybe you lose your first patient, maybe you have a series of hard cases, but it's almost totally predictable if you were if you were to look at folks' mental health that that January, somewhere between second year, it's third year for some folks that have a four-year training program, is a total low point. And we've started at least in a very abstract sense to be like, it's normal to feel like crap right now. You will probably feel better afterwards. Most people do. But that's such a blunt instrument compared to what you're describing in order both like from the the diagnostic perspective and the hopefulness perspective of being like, okay, you know, know this is coming. Yeah. I, th I mean, I think that's where this organization that I'm talking about, we're doing a similar kind of thing to what you, mm -hmm. you've just described. They're saying, look, we know this course is quite hard. 
here are some of the things you might experience and feel. I think we we were trying to go with this project that we were doing, we we're trying to move it on a little bit and go, okay, we know it's quite hard. These are some sort of the things you might experience and feel. This is the effect from a psychological perspective. This is the mechanism it's, that it's, it's probably going to be influencing those experiences we've talked about. And by the way, here are some skills and techniques that you might try and develop. And through the the reflective practice that we get them to engage in, we start to get them to think about how specific strategies or sets of strategies have influenced agency or autonomy or made me feel more confident or made me feel more related. So they're starting to build this personalized toolbox where they can go, okay, in the past, this situation happened. I did these things that made me feel like a better part of the team, or it made me feel like I could do things better. They're starting to make that these aren't psychologists, but they're starting to get the idea of, okay, I did this thing. It had this effect and here's probably why, or here's one explanation for why that might've worked in the way it did. That's the aim. Because if we can equip people with that, it's a bit like giving them a bit of a mental hook to go, okay, I can think about these things in all of these behaviors that I'm engaging in, or these processes I'm using to manage my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And then I can have an explanation for why it might've worked. I love it. Maybe let's keep pressing on that a little bit because you know, to use Dr. Lingo again, we've done a bunch of diagnosis. We've talked about like, okay, here are your relative sort of strengths on this and we can monitor those strengths over time. And I'm super excited to talk more about the Drift app also, which I think is how we actually connected originally. But maybe we move just for a second into into therapeutics and prescriptions and stuff like that. And I don't mean chemical therapeutics. I mean, just like these things that you're talking about. So what do you arm people with, right? If I'm listening to this and I'm about to go out and run a search and rescue team or my you know, ambulance partner and I are out there and we have a really hard shift we know is coming up and we're not particularly feeling high on these psychological primitives, what do we do about that? Yeah. So we can look to other domains for this. So we can, you know, the first the first port of call for some of the stuff we do, we look to sport and we go, what, what are the performance optimization skills or the mental strategies that high-performing athletes use? And these have been you know, translated into work with military populations and other kind of tactical populations. We've been doing a big project that we've we just published some work on where we, we're looking at things like mental rehearsal, imagery visualization as a tool for equipping people with something that allows them to control what's going to happen. We can influence and manage the, the images we create in our mind. Self-talk, that inner voice, the inner dialogue, how can we adapt that to be more effective for us. I, I remember a colleague, Dr. Mustafa Sarko, who's done a lot of work on resilience over the years, and he talked, I very clearly remember him saying, you know, we can always look at a situation from more than one perspective. It doesn't matter the situation, we have the choice to look at it from a different perspective. We don't have to look at it in with blinding optimism. Like if it's a really rubbish situation, we don't have to think it's really great. But we can maybe shift ourselves away from it's really terrible to something a bit more neutral. So we can use ourselves talk to we we call it reappraisal or reframing. We can we can use ourselves talk to manage some of that stuff. Now imagery and self-talk can be used for lots of different purposes. They can be used to acquire skills, they can be used to motivate ourselves, they can be used to prepare to perform, to do lots of different kind of things. So they they they're quite useful mental skills. There's things like breathing and activation control. So there's, you know, box breathing and, and these kind of double inhale breathing, this sort of stuff that allows you to control the the nervous system, essentially, the, the kind of sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. It allows you to 
bring yourself up if you're not feeling quite ready to perform. So if you're feeling a bit lethargic and not in that state that's useful for your performance, you can bring yourself up. If you've got that kind of, you know, the buzz of a adrenaline inducing situation and the heart rate's going and the breathing's going, it can use it to bring yourself back down a little bit. So there's the breathing, attentional focus type work. So you know, this is this to me is a very interesting one because we talk about high pressure, high risk environments as when we talk about stress in those settings, we sometimes talk about stress as being adaptive for performance. So, you know, it helps activate our concentration. It alerts us to threats. It's a very, you know, it's part of our survival optimization system. It's the thing that's allowed humans to run away from saber-toothed tigers and to overcome some of these challenges in our history. But it can also lead to kind of tunnel vision or attentional narrowing. And so being able to zoom in and zoom out that attentional focus is, is really important and that allows us to pick up cues that we miss them they, that might be a big a big issue so controlling that attention is really really critical so there's there's this yeah. kind of mental skills that we talk about now i've been quite keen to with some of the work we've been doing move away from just mental skills because there's a whole there's a whole load of other stuff over here coping strategies maybe slightly more proactive regulatory behaviors things like rest recovery which, you know, you do that usually outside of periods of, of, of kind of acute stress. Right. Prioritizing that's important. And things also like job crafting. So looking at how you can be proactive about creating the conditions that when you are in a performance situation, you've crafted your work in a way that enables you to function effectively in that moment that you're going to be going into. So there's a whole host of these kind of regulatory strategies. So we call them regulatory behaviors as a broad kind of catch-all. Can we focus for a minute back on the attentional work that you're describing? Because I think that's one that really resonates in and out of the emergency department as well. We're often, similar to a lot of the groups you're working with, we're often engaged in a highly technical maneuver that requires deep focus. You know, you're putting a three millimeter wire through a four millimeter hole and it's bloody and everybody's moving and, you know, et cetera. But then you also need that ability to shift back out and decide, is this still the right thing for me to be doing? Why is that patient over there on fire? Like, you know, who's screaming? What's happening? And I think that that shifting of attention, we often use the words coning in and coning out our zone of attention to figure that out, is a critical thing that I see folks develop as they're starting to hit sort of later in their training. But I'm not sure I really know how to teach it. And I'm not sure I really know how to practice it in the way that I'd want to. What do you see on that? There's loads of kind of programs, like attentional focus training programs, which are probably a little bit, in the context we're talking about, probably wouldn't really hit it with the people that we're working with. I think there's some, there's some interesting stuff. I remember interviewing an expeditioner a few years ago who had spent a lot of time in the Middle East doing journeys where you know, he'd, he'd face some quite challenging situations and, and really kind of quite critical decisions he was having to make. And he talked about using this principle of going to the balcony. And I think this is, it, it came from a, an FBI negotiator initially who, who talked about kind of going to the balcony and, and the idea of, you know, you can go from being in a very, like you've just described that, like a situation where you have to be 100% concentrated on the thing that you're doing because it's so critical. But having the awareness to go, right, that bit is over now mm. and I've got some decisions to make next that require me to zoom out a little bit. This is where the going to the balcony thing comes in because what he was describing there was trying to visualize looking at the situation from above and trying to see all the different parts from a sort of higher level 
to be able to make a better decision about like, what's the consequence of this next action that I might be taking. And same with, you know, people when we talk to like high altitude mountaineers that are having to make decisions about, you know, they've just, they've just done a really difficult pitch and they're having to make a difficult decision about like, do we carry on or do we try and go back or, you know, this things are getting a bit risky. And one of the things that they've consistently said to us is you don't have to rush those decisions, even if it feels like things are getting quite tense and we're in a hurry. You've normally got more than a split second to make those decisions. So take a step back and just think through, even if it takes you an extra minute, usually people have a bit more time than they realize to make those decisions. Yeah. And we're bumping up there into the whole, you know, a tool that is used across disciplines, this mantra of sort of like slow is smooth and smooth is fast, right? To really yeah. slow down the way that you're, that you're looking at it. And I, I think that a super skill that you're talking about that allows you to deploy some of these skills is the ability to understand when you are actually forced to act and when you're not, right? Because you mm-hmm. start early expedition, early whatever, and everything feels like a crisis and an, an emergency and a whatever, and you're just throwing yourself at it. But you watch the folks that have been doing it longer and they are really almost like parsimonious with their energy. We were talking about this with my team last night, really like you can't possibly make every decision perfectly. You have to really spend your energy where it's most useful for the people that need your help, right? So how do you learn which sets of decisions are the ones to hyper-focus and throw your energy behind and which ones are the ones to step back and think through slowly? Think that one of the strengths in the way that you're describing it is having this mental model of on the floor, on the balcony, like you're going to use both of those threads or what David Marquette describes as sort of red work, blue work, right? Your red work, your head's down, your blue work, your head's up. And you're literally sometimes moving the position of your body to remind yourself to think about it from these two streams. That skill in and of itself is something I'm really fascinated on. I struggled to develop that when I was coming up as a doctor. And I'm I'm now really involved in teaching that to folks because I think it I think it matters so much. I love the thought process of layering that with, okay, I'm going to have the skill of zooming out and then I'm going to have the skills I'm going to deploy when I'm zoomed out or zoomed in. And you're sort of organizing this mentally in your toolboxes. I mean, we would think of all of that stuff as, as regulatory behavior, essentially. You know, it's, it's what are you doing to, you have this goal and regulatory behavior is they, they are goal directed. You know, they're strategies, whether we're using them consciously or unconsciously, that allow us to think, feel and behave in a way that gets us close to the goal that we're hoping to achieve. I think the issue when we're regulating ourselves in a, an unconscious way and we're not aware of it, which is most of the time probably, especially in stressful situations, we sort of blunder our way through without necessarily, you get to the other side and we're like, oh, I did that all right, but I can't really remember how I did it. So, so sometimes it's about just maybe raising the consciousness level of like, okay, I've been in this really critical you know, this situation where I've got my head down, the red kind of work, being conscious enough to go, okay, now I need to step back and bring myself back. And I mean, that's a skill, that's a skill in itself, but I think it's something that people can be trained to pay more attention to. Have you seen anything in the groups you work with about setting up triggers for that moment? Like times to remember, like, you know, we have a thing where, you know, you're running a significant trauma. There's usually a slight pause moment when everybody leaves the room for an x-ray. And so one of the things we do is we train our leaders to, when you see the x-ray, take a step back and summarize, right? It's an external trigger that allows you to sort of kick yourself back out of that. Have you seen anything else about that or anything that works better than that? 
I mean, I think taking those opportunities when you can. So I guess the difficulty of going like, do it like this for a lot of these sure. contexts is they have such, they're such nuanced settings that you know, police officer do it the same as an emergency medicine doctor. Like they're, they're, No, no, no. Right. But, but there's the, themes in sort of, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, are you using that time? Are you using the time that you have to help? If, if you're really interested in maximizing your function, your performance, are you using those times that you have to, to do that? And that might be doing nothing sometimes, like purposefully doing nothing. And so taking the time to rest, which may require you to do some kind of switch off routine. So allow you to mentally detached for a period of time to be able to then come back fresher and be ready to perform. But being purposeful about what's happening in those times is, is something that people talk to us about, you know, if we want to maximize our, our performance. That might not just be a self-focused activity. That might be, you know, if we go back to talking about the relatedness aspect of this, it might be going, I'm going to go and ask other people how they're doing. The reason we're increasingly interested in that issue, and we've, do, we've just published, we've got a paper that we're writing at the moment that's going to come out soon, hopefully, looking at the synergy between extreme teams. So the teams I study are isolated, confined, and extreme teams, and new venture entrepreneurial startup teams. And we're, we've been looking at the kind of synergy between those two, because there's psychologically and socially, they're quite similar. And one of the things that we've been talking a lot about in that work is that the team itself is a direct input to individual coping and self-regulation. Yeah. So normally we talk about it from the other way around. We say that team, individual team members will regulate themselves and that will allow them to be a better team member. What we're trying to argue is actually that there's a sort of downward link there where the team itself is an input to individuals being able to perform. Yeah, that certainly makes intuitive sense, right? I mean, I, I think we definitely feel that when we're in these closed group sort of teams like that. How long do you think a team needs to be together to do that, right? Can swarm teams do that or does it have to be only like intact teams? Because it, it seems very naively more obvious in intact teams. The longer you work with people, the better able you are to pass those emotional waves or whatever you want to call it, probably not that, back and forth to each other. But Amy Edmondson talks about this a little bit on the stuff when she does teaming, you know, all the teaming work she's been doing. I think when we look at fast forming teams. So this idea of like rapid rapport or swift trust, I think it can happen quite quickly. When some of the work that I do, when we talk about interagency team working, where you've got people from different departments having to come together and work together, if they go into that situation with the mindset of, I don't know this person, but my role here is to maximize myself and the other people in that team. If we're all going into that with that mindset, then we'd be purposeful about taking care and nurturing those relationships, even if it's just for 30 minutes. There's maybe a, a cultural position on that, like that breed that's bred through messages that are coming at people from different directions. But I think people can be responsible for that themselves and they can go, I don't know these five people that I'm working with, but I want to make myself better and I want to make them better. Love it, man. All right. I have one last question for you before we start wrapping up here, which is sure. that I'm not an expedition person. I'm not a psychologist. And I'm guessing that there's maybe something that I don't even know how to ask you. So what question have I not asked you that I should have that you think people listening to this would benefit from? Just leapfrog my knowledge and, and you know, straight into the vein for folks for this. The thing that I think is probably a big thing that we've not covered in, in my, you know, the work that we've been doing is that stress tends to kind of carry its baggage around with it as a negative thing. 
And so we, you know, we, a lot of what we hear now is like people are really stressed and it's a very, like the work is very stressful and there's a lot of the sort of mental health and resilience stuff being talked about. And I think that's, you know, chronically, I think that's probably the case, but I think in a performative situation, stress can be leveraged. And actually when we talk about basic needs principles, so those are arc autonomy relatedness and competence things, the reason they are functional when we're under stress and pressure is that they contribute to what we call challenge stress appraisals rather than threat stress appraisals. So, you know, you could have that adrenaline, the fight, flight, freeze response and all the associated kind of responses that come with it. But if you have those arc satisfaction you know, feelings, like I feel like I'm in control, I'm connected and I'm competent, that stress response is more likely to enable good performance than if, if those things are very frustrated. This sort of our journey with stress we can sort of see it from lots of different perspectives and getting rid of it may not be the, the best way. So getting rid of stress altogether may not be the, the best approach. Hence why all the people I study choose to go to these stressful environments. I love it. Nathan, I, I want to give you a chance at the end of this to, to issue a challenge to anybody listening to this. What is it that you want them after hearing all of this to try to think through or to do differently tomorrow morning? There's two things. So in the morning when you get into work, the first thing to think about is, do I feel in control? Can I do things how I want to? Do I feel trusted and supported by other people? And do I feel confident and capable at the start of the day? At the end of the day, go back to those things. During today, have I felt in control? Can I do the things I want to do? Do I feel trusted and supported or have I felt trusted and supported? And I was I confident and capable? And just against those very rough temperature checks of kind of a 0 to 10 or a 0 to 100 assessment on those things, think about how it went during the day. Like, what was your performance like? How did you feel about what was going on? Were you happy about, were you satisfied with what you were doing? And just have a go at that process of, of reflecting. Love it, man. I think the mark for me of a really successful podcast is when I walk away being like, damn, I have so many things I need to learn more about and so many things I need to read and so many ideas to chase down. And I, I definitely feel like that at the end of this. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing with us. I know we barely scratched the surface of a lot of your work and I'm grateful for your time. Thanks, Dan. That's a pleasure. And, and I hope there's something in there that appeals to people and helps. Absolutely. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.